Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. We pray that the Lord speaks to you in all the ways that you need to hear from him this morning. Well, this week we are continuing on into week three of our series, Finding Christ in Xmas. And remember, we talked several weeks ago, and I will introduce this every week just in case we have someone new, that the X in Xmas is not a removal of Christ, but it is actually a symbol that reminds us of Christ. It is the, the X that marks the spot of the treasure of our salvation that is Jesus. And beyond that, it is a historic symbol of the Cairo. It is the, the first letter in the name of Jesus. It is not a removal of Jesus. It is a symbol to remind us of the centrality of Christ in the Christmas season, in the Christmas story. And my hope and prayer, our hope and prayer, is that as you go through this Christmas season and as you see the lights and you see the trees and you shop for gifts and you receive gifts and you do all of the Christmassy things, that your attention would be drawn back to what it's really all about. That it's all about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God condescending and coming down to us in human form that he might live and die for our salvation. If you would, go with me again to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to his word. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for the hope of this season. Lord, that though darkness may surround us, Though chaos and confusion seem to be the order of the day, that you, Christ, are not lost in the midst of it. Lord, that you know what's going on, that you have a plan, and you will bring a purpose even through our struggle and our suffering. That in our loneliness, we are not alone. That in our hurt, there is the potential for healing. That in Jesus, we find all that our heart truly needs. God, this morning as we consider the lengths to which you have gone to be with us and the accessibility that you have granted to us through your coming, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and draw our attention to you anew. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that there is an entire academic discipline devoted to the understanding of signs? The field of study is actually known as semiotics. And semiotics, this, this field, it, it has uh, three different dynamics to it, or three different levels, if you would, three primary areas of semiotic focus where people learn to look at signs and understand them in various ways. The first area of semiotics is cognitive semiotics. This involves understanding how individuals derive meaning using signs and symbols. Cognitive semiotics. How, how do we process the signs that we see out in the world? And, and I know when, when I think of signs, I think of like signs in the heavens. But this is, this is even more general and specific than that. How do, we, how do we, yes, see and 
perceive and understand signs that might be God speaking to us. But more simply, how do we understand the McDonald's golden arches when we drive down the road? What, what does that mean to our minds? How, how do we understand the, the, the Starbucks sign on the sign of the road or the caution sign that we see? All of these things are meant to, to trigger a response and a cognitive understanding in our minds. So the first thought or the first area of study is cognitive semiotics. How do we understand and develop meaning in this, these signs? The second area of semiotics is cultural semiotics. It deals with the way that signs developed and are used in particular cultures. That, that there are certain signs that, that have meaning in the American context that maybe don't have the same meaning or any meaning in another culture. You know, for us, the, the Statue of Liberty has incredible, dip, deep, rich meaning for us. The, 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 the American flag itself is not just a flag, but there is, there is meaning to be interpreted from within the flag itself with the stripes and the stars. They're, they're, it's rich with meaning that you and I oftentimes don't even think about. We just take it for granted because in our culture, that sign has meaning. Cultural semiotics. The final area of semiotics is visual semiotics. This focus is specifically on visual signs in art and design. When you break it down, semiotics is the study of how we communicate with one another in meaningful ways and how others communicate with us. That's particularly important when we think about the ways that God communicates with us. The scriptures are rich with, with symbols and symbolic things and signs that, that some of them that were very in tune with a cultural period in that time, signs that were specifically for those people, some signs that were meant to be transcendent, that no matter where you came from, if you saw those signs, you know, and signs that even now, as we look at them, we are to derive meaning for them and they draw our attention towards Christ. The Christmas season itself it is full of signs, is it not? And you can't turn and look any which way during the Christmas season and not see some kind of sign. I have just a few that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first is the Christmas tree itself. Right? You walk around the church, and I'm not sure how many Christmas trees we have. Oh, one, two, three, four, five. Five at least right here, and then two in the office, so seven. One in the children's ring, eight. Two down to the nine, ten. At least ten Christmas trees here in the church. Not to mention all of the other swags and greenery that is hanging throughout the church. The Christmas tree is a sign, a symbol of eternal life. Which is kind of ironic if you think about it. And that most of us use a fake tree, which is, in fact, perpetually dead. Or, in order to bring in our live Christmas tree, we cut it down and bring it inside, which then will result in it becoming dead. So the tree loses its life in order to give us the symbol. But the green branches are meant to, to symbolize for us. They are to be a sign of eternal life, specifically as followers of Jesus, that eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. Then we have the Christmas lights that we adorn the trees with and we put on our houses and, and cars and sweaters and my socks this morning. Christmas lights are one of the most prevalent but easily ignored symbols or signs of the season. 
They're often seen as just a pretty accessory to go with other decorations, more substantive decorations that we put up. But Christmas lights carry their own meaning. They are the one Christmas decoration that actually reminds us of the, the, least, the least paid attention or talked about Christmas passage, which is John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, it tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, that brings us actually to a secondary sign that, that I didn't even have in my notes for this morning, but, but that would be Christmas being on December 25th. I hate to ruin it for any of you that believe that Jesus was born on a snowy, blustery day in Palestine, but Jesus wasn't born in the winter. I mean, the fact of the matter is nobody really knows exactly the date of Jesus' birth. It's likely that he was born in the spring, but it's inconsequential. The question then becomes, well, why then is Christmas on December 25th in the winter months? Well, it is to align it with the winter solstice. It is to remind us that in the darkness, in the darkest time of, the li- of our lives, that the light has come and is coming. It's pointing towards the light, even being on December 25th. Then we have the gifts, right? The gifts themselves are a sign to us, reminding us of the true meaning of Christmas. At least they should be. They serve as symbols and signs of our own love for our loved ones, do they not? A sign of our concern and care for them, our appreciation of them in our lives. But more than that, the gifts we give should serve as a reminder of the true gift of Christmas. The gift of God's own Son. The gift of God with us. His abiding power and presence through His Holy Spirit that came to us and lives in us perpetually and helps us to live on into eternity. It comes because Christ came in the form of a baby to live a human life and die a human death that we might live in resurrection for eternity. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The truth is, though, that eternal life is simply a side effect of the true gift that God has given us. We make a mistake when we think that it is eternal life itself that is the gift of God. That is something that comes from the gift. The gift that God gave is so much more valuable than our eternal life. He gave the eternal life of his son for us. All of these signs and symbols and so many more are tools that are meant to redirect our attention to Jesus, the Christ of Christmas. And signs and symbols, again, are everywhere throughout the Christmas narrative in the Bible. Some are obvious. Others may be a little bit more obscure. But I was thinking this week as I was looking through the various Christmas texts, and even in previous weeks, that 
that there is in fact only one explicit sign given throughout the Christmas narrative. One explicit sign where it is clearly stated that this is the sign that you need to be looking for. And I think it's important for us to consider that sign this morning and what it means for us and for the world at large. If you have a Bible with with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the king of all Christmas passages. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 2 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. There's a lot going on in this passage, but the thing that I love about the Luke 2 portion of of the Christmas passage, and one of the reasons that I think it gets so much airtime, is one, because it it is the retelling of the actual birth, the coming of the Christ, his arrival. It's the arrival passage. But one of the things that I notice about the 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 true nativity passage where we get the, the arrival of Christ and the coming of the angels is how basic it is. I mean, really, if you look at the Luke 2 passage and you remove from it what you already know, right? We know because we know what Matthew and Luke 1 say. And we know that that Mary was a virgin and that she gave birth, though she'd never known a man. We know that, right? Miraculous, it's amazing. 
But if you just, we, we know about the angels that came and spoke to them. We know about the prophecies that came before. We know about all of these things that make the birth of Jesus special. But if you look at the reality of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, other than the angels who only appear to the shepherds, it's just a lady having a baby, right? It's people being inconvenienced by their government. And none of us can relate to that, can we? The government wanting their tax dollars to make sure that they get what they are owed. One of the, the themes that constantly comes to my attention as I consider the Christmas season, because we think about Christmas as being this time of joy, this time of comfort and joy, right? We think of it as being a time that, that brings peace and, and that brings tranquility. And, and so it should be for us this time of ease where our hearts just are full of joy and everything is all right. But when is that ever the case in life? Just because we throw some trees up and throw some lights on them does not mean our regular problems all of a sudden go away. Right? We still got to go to work almost every day, right? Driving past all the nice lights. And, and because of the wonder of daylight savings time, we get to drive home in the dark and see all the lights. We're often tempted in the midst of our difficulties. And I think particularly as if difficulties come to us during the Christmas holiday season, we are prone to believe that somehow God is unhappy with us. That the difficulties and the struggles of our life indicate God's absence. But if we consider the truth of the Christmas story, we realize something that is so important for us to remember in our daily lives. Uncom uncomfortable or inconvenient experiences are not always a sign of God's absence. In fact, they are often signs of God's divine activity. Uncomfortable or inconvenient experiences are not always signs of God's absence. They are often signs of his activity. Now, I know we could talk about areas where the, the discomfort of life and the inconvenience of life are the results of our own actions. I get that. But how many issues that we face in life are just life? How many things that we face in life are just the reality of the difficulty of living day to day on this earth? Very few portions of the Christmas narrative were comfortable or convenient for Mary and Joseph. Yet the Bible tells us explicitly that they were favored. Even as the angels we see here in, in Luke 2, even as the angels are scaring the mess out of the shepherds, they note that there is peace on those on whom God's favor rests. There's irony in that, is, it, is there not? That there, the, the angels, like it was one angel and now it's a host of angels. Those shepherds are experiencing anything but peace. They had peace before God's divine sign and message showed up, didn't they? I mean, they're out in the field just minding their own business, watching a couple sheep, listening to some baas and looking for some wolves. It's not that big of a thing, right? It's probably dark, no light pollution. They're living it up out there. And all of a sudden, an angel with the glory of the Lord is like, bam! 
And note, like we like to think of it that the angels are singing. You know that nowhere in the text does it tell us the angels are singing? He just make an announcement. Yo, behold, I bring good news of great joy to all people. By the way, don't be scared. God favors you. Mary and Joseph received their own notices in Luke 1 and and in Matthew chapter 1. But again, very few portions of the Christmas narrative were comfortable or convenient for Mary, Joseph, or anyone involved in the Christmas story. Yet the Bible tells us they were favored by God. Luke 1, 26 through 38 is the announcement of the angel to Mary. I've told you if you've been here in previous Christmas sermons as I've talked about Luke 126 or even as Michaela talked about it a couple of years ago, I am struck by the dissonance of what the angel announces to Mary and what her felt experience was going to be. You're a virgin, Mary, I get that, but God has chosen you. His favor is on you and that's going to be expressed through you being pregnant, though you've never known a man and though you are currently unmarried. There is little in that, in the human experience, that was going to be comfortable or convenient, right? I mean, in, in, even in our day, in our day, we, we tend to, to not look twice when we see people who are pregnant who are not currently married. But even within the last few years, that was something that there was not looked very highly upon, and, and you were... You were going to deal with some difficulty. I remember when my sister was pregnant at 15, having to have arguments with people in the halls of my Christian school who were, who were talking about her in, in negative ways. It was even more so back in Mary's day. Yet the angel reveals that God's favor was upon her and that she was chosen to bear God's son, the promised Messiah. From what I understand, every, even when everything goes as planned, even when everything goes perfectly in pregnancy, it is neither comfortable nor convenient. Now, I don't know that from experience because I, by God's good grace, have never been pregnant. <laughs> but I will tell you that even as a passive observer along for the ride, that Robin's pregnancy with both of our children was less than comfortable, and there were many inconveniences along the way. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying, not comfortable, not convenient, particularly for a teenage girl in a situation in a world where her life is literally on the line because of it, where the rest of her life hangs in the balance. Then we think about Joseph's experience, which we talked about last week in Matthew 1, 18 through 24. J- Joseph's experience, while full of promise and hope for all, would have been uncomfortable and inconvenient for him. The angel invites Joseph to serve as the surrogate father for the Son of God. What a great privilege that would have been. But what an unwelcome weight that that had to have been. Can you imagine? It's hard enough raising fallible kids. You can't tell them anything. Can you imagine raising a perfect kid? That when that kid tells you that you are wrong about something, he is always right? (laughs) Nothing convenient or comfortable about that. 
We do see evidence of God's favor in this situation, but again, not comfortable or convenient. By going ahead with the marriage, who is everyone going to assume was that baby's daddy? Joseph would, in fact, be guilty by association. Joseph would would bring guilt and shame upon his family. It would likely result in the cancellation of a long worked for and planned out wedding celebration. Neither comfortable nor convenient. Then to make matters worse, they're walking through this uncomfortable situation and the government decides that now is the time that they need to get their money. Now is the time. And they can't just talk and find out where everybody is, where they are. they got to relocate everybody for a period of time. Understand, this was not a quick there and back trip. And I don't mean just in the journey. Joseph and Mary probably were in Bethlehem for up to at least two years. We don't, we don't know how long. The, the text doesn't tell us how long they were in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. But this is a full-out relocation of basically the entire Roman world. Everyone being sent home. And apparently it was time-sensitive. You know, God has a habit of using adverse situations to perfectly position us to participate in his plan. To experience the power and presence of Jesus. Verses 1 through 7 tell us that the government decided to make sure they were going to make their money at that time and send Joseph back to his hometown. This family then, Mary and Joseph and their their loved ones, experienced all of the stress of the holiday season with none of the accompanying celebrations. I mean, how many of our popular holiday classic Christmas songs involve a line or two about the difficulty or discomfort of travel? I mean, there are several. That traffic is frightful, it's terrible, and that the weather, the roads are awful, and it's hard to get to and from where you're going. And, and we know that the songs don't do it justice. It's way worse. Right? Even today, with our climate-controlled vehicles, cushioned seats, and quick rate of travel, most of us don't relish the experience of traveling to and from various localities during the Christmas season. According to the traditional reading of the text, Mary was extremely far along with her pregnancy when she and Joseph made the trip. Without, Without the comfort and convenience of a car... When we see the picture, we imagine Mary on a donkey, right? Riding along and poor Joseph walking in front of it and, and imagine that that's how they made the trip. But historical data tells us that that's not what happened. That Mary and Joseph likely could not have afforded a donkey, a camel, or any other means of four-legged transportation. Which meant that the entire 90-mile trip The 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was made on foot. While Mary is extremely pregnant. Can you imagine that? 
And not only that, but Mary and Joseph did not make the trip solo, right? That's what we like to see in our head. Mary and Joseph slowly walking along the Judean landscape with a picturesque scene of stars in the background. And, and Mary rides the donkey and Joseph walks before it. And we're like, yeah, that's what Christmas is like. They, they walked in a caravan with their entire family. And it's even worse for Mary because it wasn't Mary's family. It was Joseph's family. We all know what it's like walking along with the in-laws and all of their children's, right? It's part of what makes Christmas, like as they say in Christmas vacation, it's Christmas. Everybody's miserable. <laughs> Mary's got to make a four-day, 90-mile trek with all of the precious cherubs of her in-laws, which were probably many. There is no way that Joseph and Mary would have chosen to made the, make the trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem without outside influence forcing the issue. The discomfort and inconvenience of their experience, in fact, wasn't evidence of God's absence. It was evidence of his divine hand moving them to exactly where they need to be, needed to be to participate in the greatest moment in history. And God didn't use some exceptional circumstances to make it happen. It's one of those subtle signs that if, if Mary and Joseph weren't looking for it, they would have missed it. Because God used ordinary events to move Mary and Joseph to where they needed to be to participate in his plan. Often, we see adverse situations and experiences as evidence of God's absence. But what if, in fact, they are evidence of God's divine activity to develop us and to move us along the way, to put us in the position where we need to be to experience his plan for our lives? What if our struggles are a means God uses to move and mold us in preparation for the manifestation of his presence and power in and through our lives. I know that that has been the case for me in my own life. That the things that moved me along in my journey with Christ, that, that moved me from one place to another, that, that put me where I needed to be to experience God's next piece of his plan for my life, they are almost never comfortable. There's never been a situation where I look around and I see what's happening in my life and I think, man, everything is awesome. You know what? I should go screw it up and do something else right now. Right? When we're comfortable, we call it a comfort zone for a reason. And we will do whatever we can to protect that area and to stay in that area. But rarely is it when we're comfortable that we experience the power and presence of Christ in the clearest ways. Christianity following Christ is a journey that Christ continues to push us along. And it is often the inconvenient and uncomfortable and the everyday and ordinary through which God works in our lives. It's one of the things I see here in Luke chapter 2. We must seek and find the signs of Christ's presence in the everyday as well as the exceptional we must seek and find the signs of Christ's presence in the everyday as well as the exceptional. There are numerous signs and prophecies 
that reveal that Jesus was the promised Christ. I mean, if we were to look back in Micah 5, verse 2, we would see that it was prophesied that Bethlehem was to be the city in which Jesus, the Messiah, was to be born. We could look in Numbers 24, 17, which we'll look at next week, and we'd see that a star would rise out of Judah and a scepter out of Israel, that a star would be an important sign of the coming of Christ. And actually, that's not even true, that the star would be what was actually born. It's not the star in the sky that mattered, but the star in the manger. Isaiah 7, 14 tells us, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a sign. Now this sign is an explicit sign. What I mean by an explicit sign is that it is clearly said, this is a sign, right? But note something, that this sign is only an explicit sign in the Old Testament prophecy itself. Matthew adds it as an editorial comment in the New Testament. But even he doesn't say, the the explicit nature of it is Old Testament. There's only one new sign that is given to us in the New Testament. I often think of this too. Like the angels are in the sky. Like we don't know how they showed up. Were Were they standing there? Were they in the sky? We know that the glory of God was around them. Were they like winged creatures? Like what we see, the terrifying ones in Isaiah with wings on their eyes and their feet and wings that are flying. Did they have a billion eyes? What did they look like? We don't know. Doesn't really matter. How is that not the sign? Right? Like, how, how, how does the angel, with a straight face, look at the shepherds and say, hey, here we are with the glory of the Lord, glory to God in the highest. The sign, though, is something else. It's exactly what happens, though, isn't it? That the angels in all of their glory, with the greatness of their news and their announcement, are not the sign. In fact, the angels point to something else. And we see it here in Luke chapter 2. Verse 10, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Are you kidding me? The angels in all their glory doing their things with the heavenly host, that's not the sign? What is the sign? You're going to find a baby wrapped up in some cloths in a feeding trough. That's the sign. That's exceptional to me. I mean, and the reason it's exceptional is that God didn't choose the exceptional things of the story to be the sign that pointed to Jesus. He chose the everyday and ordinary things to show that Christ had come. There's some rich irony in that, isn't there? Angel of the Lord, surrounded by God's glory, announcing the arrival of Christ and pointing to some cloths and a feeding trough as the sign. But I think there's a reason for that. I think that the manner of Christ's birth is simple in order to draw our attention not to the sign, but to the Savior. Not to the angels, but to the Messiah. It's not about the manger. It's about the baby. 
and the significance of the child that lie in the manger that is the sign that needs to be seen. God used, used an everyday sign to announce his coming to ordinary people to reveal that Christ had come for them and for all of humanity. It's interesting, though, for you and I, we see Christ in the manger, and historically the way we've seen that is a sign of rejection. I mean, how many sermons have you heard that talked about that terrible innkeeper not making space for him, for Jesus, in the inn? And we see the, we see the manger as being some kind of a, a punishment, some kind of a consolation prize because they didn't have anything else available for poor Jesus, so he had to sleep in the manger. But if we look at the text, that is not the case. In no way is the manger a sign of rejection. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that the manger is the ultimate sign of acceptance, both of man for God's Messiah and God's Messiah for humanity. The manger was a sign that God desired to accept and welcome humanity into his presence. Do you think, do you really think that God couldn't have arranged it for his son to have born, been born anywhere else? Do you think that God worked everything else out? That the divine birth or, or, or consummation of the pregnancy in Mary, that God can work out a virgin birth, but he can't find a good bed and a room for his baby in Bethlehem. I mean, really, think about it. It doesn't give a good look for God. You know what? It wasn't an accident that Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus was born to poor, the poor, the humble, and the displaced. He came to the least of these to announce his availability to all. He came as a commoner. Because though he is the greatest of all times, he was made available to the least of these. The manger was a sign that God desired to accept and welcome humanity into his presence, even at its most humble levels. But the manger was also a sign that the people had accepted and welcomed Christ into their presence. How many of you have ever heard or used this phrase when dropping your kids off or when kids are dropped off to you or when you were dropped off to someone else's house? Treat them as your own. Anyone ever used that before? I know I have. Hey, treat them as your own. We actually talked to a girl in, in North Carolina one time on a mission trip and she told us that in the South that they just live different. And when they say in the South, she said, and I quote, well, when they say that in the South, that means you beat that tail. We don't do that in the north. That's not how it works up here. What it means in the north is it means I'm going to, I want you to love my kid and treat them as if you would your child. I want to I know that you're going to care for them, correct them, and move them along. That, that's the best care you can possibly give. As parents, it is our hope that treating them like their own will result in them de demonstrating compassionate care for our children. That treating them like their own means that they'll make sure they're safe, warm, fed, and likely by the time we get there, hopefully breathing. It's a sign of acceptance. 
Our modern understanding of the Christmas story leads us to believe that Jesus was rejected and left out on the cold by some heartless innkeeper. In reality, there was no inn. When it says there was no room in the inn, it's actually talking about the upper room. It's the same word that Luke later uses for the upper room that Jesus and the disciples went to. And it was a guest room. And it said, look, there's no room in the guest room. There are all kinds of family there. So what did they do? Rather than putting Jesus and Mary and Joseph out into the cold, they said, you know what? Come into our living room. They invited them into their living space. And when they wrapped baby Jesus in the claws and they laid him in the manger, they did exactly what they would have done with their own baby. They treated him like he was one of their own. This is why it's a sign to the shepherds. It's also why it seems like a terrible sign to me. I mean, how did they figure out that that was the right baby? Like, was Jesus the only baby in Bethlehem at that point in time? But that is the sign, right? You, you go into Bethlehem, and you're going to find a new baby. And when you find that baby, it's going to be wrapped in slaughtering clothes, clothes and, and placed in a manger, just like your baby. Why? Because God has come for you. He has been born to you. He's not their savior for for somebody out there. He is the savior for the everyday and ordinary people in the world. And I don't know anyone in the world, even the wealthy, that don't don't think of themselves as being everyday and ordinary. I think it's great that God used such a simple sign, such a a down-to-earth, an ordinary sign, Because it reminds us that whatever chaos we're facing, whatever displacement we might be in, wherever God has been moving us, that Jesus joins us in the everyday and the ordinary. That it's not just in the exceptional and these miraculous things in which we've seen God, that God is working in the daily struggles, the daily wins and losses, the daily efforts we have to put in. The coming of Christ is, in fact, exceptional. He is the source of the good news of great joy for all people. He came to join us in all parts of our lives. He is the savior of our everyday and ordinary as well as our exceptional moments. By his power and presence, he has made it possible for us to be accepted by God, provided we accept him into our lives. When we've accepted and we've seen these signs, and we found the Savior, we need to spread the word. That's what I love about this, and I think this is one of the great things about this happening to these poor shepherds, is they didn't have any sense to keep it to themselves. Too often, when we have these good things, we, we want to hoard them for ourselves. We want to hide them away. We kind of want to, not that Mary was wrong in this, she just had a baby, give her a break, but Mary treasures these things in her hearts. What do the shepherds do? They went and blabbed to everyone. To anyone that could listen. And did you notice one of the key elements that they told everybody when they went and talked? Though, sure, they shared the good news of great joy. The shepherds returned in verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. In this season of giving, there is no greater gift we can share with the people that we love than the gift of Jesus. 
There is no greater gift than we can receive. There is no greater gift that we can give than Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone should run out and buy a Bible for their loved ones for Christmas. Though I'm not against it. But we do, in all of our lives, in the chaos and the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the season, we need to slow down and take time to consider all of the signs of Christmas. To make sure that they are seen and clearly understood in our own hearts and minds and in the hearts and minds of our families. The signs may be cultural, cognitive, or visual, but the implications are eternal. That Christ has come for us and for all people. May we see the signs in the midst of our struggle. May we see the light in the midst of the darkness. May we see the exceptional in the midst of the ordinary. May we be reminded that Christ has come. That the Christ of Christmas is here for us, with us, and through us. Both now and forevermore. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the simple signs of Christmas. The simple signs that remind us that you are with us, that you are for us, and that in your great love, you continue to walk with us. God, may we see you in the everyday and ordinary. May we trust that in the midst of of our regular happenings that you are moving and working. May we understand in the difficulties of of life that it does not mean that we are experiencing your disfavor, but may we see your guiding hand moving us where you want us to be, that we might experience and share your power and presence. God, I thank you for your great love that is seen in simple and ordinary things in our everyday lives. May we see you and celebrate you, not just on Christmas Day, but every day. In Jesus' name, amen.